Amen. John chapter 11, verses 38 through 44, brothers, is our text for this morning. John 11, verses 38 through 44. And we have the privilege again of looking at this powerful miracle that we've been um, examining in John chapter 11 by our Lord Jesus. But helpful for us is to recall sort of where we've been, right? It's always good to uh, think about the panorama, the big picture uh, of, of the gospel of John. And um, so remember the big picture here, okay? If you think of the gospel of John, think of the first 12 chapters, John 1 through 12, as really highlighting the glory of Christ as seen in his works, as heard in his uh, life-changing words that Jesus taught and the I am statements, the glory of Christ, John chapters 1 through 12, and then uh, John chapters 13 through 21 are really the passion of Christ, his suffering, his death, his burial, his resurrection, as we're going to see. And if you remember, really, since John chapter 5, since Jesus healed the invalid man in John chapter 5, Jesus has been experiencing hostility, right? Confrontation after confrontation with these religious leaders. Uh, over and over again, we see that they are hounding Jesus all the way from John chapter 5, all the way till now to this particular chapter, so that by the time you get to chapter 11 and verse 53, if you notice, it says in our next text that we're going to look at next week, that from that day on, they, the Sanhedrin, made plans to put Jesus to death. That's John eleven fifty three, And that's really a turning point, as we're going to see next week, where now that catapults us into the passion of Christ uh, uh, in, the, in, the, uh, in a couple of chapters, where Jesus is now going to go to the, to the cross, as he's been promising. So we're seeing this hostility and, and these religious leaders hounding Jesus. And yet, throughout the whole Gospel of John, Jesus is undeterred, isn't he? He's undeterred about his mission. He keeps saying things like, I came to do my Father's will. I have come to do my Father's will. My hour has not yet come. Whenever people think that Jesus is going to finally be executed or he's going to die, he keeps saying, my hour has not yet come. I'm in my own timetable, and I'm going to accomplish my Father's will. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world, and you who are my followers, essentially, um, who are with me, walk in the light as long as you have the light, believe in the light, namely himself, excuse me, himself. And so he has spoken these life-giving words, performed life-transforming works. Why? To reveal first and foremost his glory, but also so that people might come to, to believe in him, might come to trust in him, might come to, to abandon self-trust and to put their trust in himself and the Lord Jesus Christ. So six signs he's done in John to show who he is, right? And John tells us that there are many other things that Jesus did later on, that if they were written, all of the books of the whole world could not contain the things that Jesus had done. Six signs he's done. This is the seventh now of seven miracles that Jesus uh, performs here in John, that John features to point to the glory of Christ. And this is perhaps the, the greatest of all the miracles in the Gospel of John. It's kind of hard to... to um, uh, you know, Trump herald one miracle above another, right? But this is where Jesus overcomes death in the resurre resurrection of Lazarus. And um, basically, this becomes a microcosm of what Jesus himself is about to do later on. He's going to rise from the dead. And if you studied already the, uh, John chapter 11, um, you get this, right? At least initially, you, you, you don't miss the fact that there's this sense of 
there's such a, a tone of and a tenor of despair and hopelessness here in John chapter 11 on the part of the, of the people, of Mary and Martha and, and all of the mourners who come in to mourn the death of Lazarus. There's such a tone of despair and a tenor of, of just hopelessness on the part of the people. If you look at verse 21, Martha expresses this sense of hopelessness. Lord, if you had been here, verse 21, my brother would not have died. And then look at verse 32. Mary herself, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Verse 37. But some of them said, the people who were there, could not he, Jesus, who opened the eyes of the blind man, also have kept this man from dying? All of these are expressions of discouragement, of despair, of a sense of hopelessness on the part of the people who are there. And yet before them, in their presence, here in John chapter 11, stands one who is the resurrection and the life. If only they would believe in him, they can have hope, even in the midst of such a human crisis such as death. And this is where some of the pertinence comes in for us, right? We want to be people who operate differently than the people of John chapter 11. We want to be men, don't we, of hope. Men who even in the midst of of such a, a society that we're living in that is a despairing society because of the reality of death. We want to be men who live with a certain sense of, of hope. And, and we understand that our hope is different than worldly hope, right? Worldly hope is this sense of wishful thinking. Maybe this thing is going to happen in the future. But what is Christian hope? Christian hope is, is, a, is a certain expectation. It's certain. It's a certain anticipation of that which is to happen in the future because our hope is grounded upon and based upon the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the question that I really want us to answer this morning from this text, in addition to seeing the glory of Christ in his raising of Lazarus from the dead, is this. How might we live in hope in the midst of despairing times? These are despairing times in our, in our text, aren't they? Somebody has died, people are mourning, and Jesus is going to give these people hope in what he's going to do and point them to a gr the greater reality that through him they can experience the resurrection from the dead as well. And so how might we live in hope? I think there are three lessons from this great miracle about living with hope. And so if you're going to live with hope in a broken, fallen world, then you and I, where death is a reality, then you and I must Learn to take Christ at his word, first and foremost. Write that down. We must learn to take Christ at his word. People of hope, even in the midst of great, the greatest of crises, are people who take Christ at his word. And, and unfortunately, in our passage here, we have folks who are not excelling at taking Jesus at his word, right? And this is grievous to our Lord Jesus. Look at verse 38. This grieves him. That there are people who are operating with the sense of despair and hopelessness, even though he's amongst them. Verse 38, Jesus deeply moved again, the text tells us. We've seen that language back in verse 33, if you notice. It says that when Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved, verse 33, in his spirit and greatly troubled. It's an expression of intense emotion of righteous indignation that Jesus displays there. There is certainly empathy on the part of our Lord Jesus. Haven't we seen the compassion and the mercy of Jesus in the Gospel of John, brothers? We've seen that. 
He's empathetic towards people who are living in a broken, fallen world and who experience the reality of death. Jesus is very empathetic, right? Because people live in this state of brokenness. But the Lord Jesus is also moved here and and troubled because of the utter hopelessness displayed by the people because of death. And not only that, but more importantly, Jesus is feeling this way because of of the littleness of their faith. Because they are faithless. It's like, don't you guys know who I am? Haven't you become familiar with what I'm capable of doing? Haven't you seen the works? Haven't you heard the life-giving words? They don't get it. Even those who are genuine followers of his. And so he's deeply moved as he comes to the tomb. Verse 38, it says, it was a cave and a stone lie against it. The imagery for those people of a gravesite, of a tomb, was a very hopeless one, right? It's, it was, their, it was like, a, like a gravesite for us. Here is the ultimate symbol of the end. Their present-day cemetery, a tomb. In those days, Jews buried their dead in caves, either natural caves or, or caves hewn out of the rock. And, and the entrance of the cave would have been sealed by this large circular stone, a tombstone four to five feet in diameter, several inches thick, not only heavy enough to, to keep robbers and animals out, but heavy enough to keep the stench of the dead corpse in, trapped in. So that's what the, this imagery is here. It's a hopeless imagery for people who mourn the death of a loved one. And everyone knew that tombs, uh, that once a tomb was sealed, there was a certain finality to this funeral. There was a certain finality to the life of that person. In the case of, case of Lazarus, he had been there four days. Four days. Our text tells us that. That meant that he was, he was dead as a doornail, right? He was gone. This is why Mary and Martha and the crowds all vocalized this tone of, of you're too late. There was a sense of finality to Lazarus from their perspective, but not when Jesus, the resurrection and the life is present. Amen? Look at verse 39. Jesus said in the midst of this, Im- this, this um, imagery of, of hopelessness, take away the stone, verse 39. Take away the stone. No stone's going to stop Jesus A command with fullness of authority, Jesus orders this. Can you imagine the reaction of the bystanders when he says this? Can you imagine what they're thinking? Say what? I mean, but he's dead, dead as can be. Has Jesus gone mad here? I mean, there is no hope for this man anymore. They've already expressed that Jesus is late to the show. If he could have done anything, he's way too late to do anything at this point. This is why Martha in verse 39 says, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead four days. Now listen, don't be so hard on Martha, right? What would be your response if Jesus had said that? In your humanness, right? Martha is in the heat of emotion here. So let's not be super critical of her. And yet... Her tone, isn't it, and her words are somewhat condescending here. After all, Jesus already knew that Lazarus had been dead four days. Does Jesus need to be reminded of what happens to decaying bodies? 
And then keep in mind that this is the, the same Martha who back in verse 27 uttered the ultimate confession in verse 27. Yes, Lord, she says, I believe that you are the, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God who is coming into the world. What a declaration. What a confession. Earlier, and yet she turns right around, having professed that kind of truth, a truth of that magnitude, and she shows the littleness of her faith by placing limits on Jesus. As if Jesus is subject to, to time. She now denies with her very actions what she professes with her words and affirmed earlier on in our text. And here's a great example, brothers, of, of how there will always be a disconnect between what we know and what we articulate that we know and what we practice with our lives. To some extent or another, we are all Marthas, aren't we? We all operate this way in life, even as followers of Jesus. And Martha is a follower of Jesus. She's a believer in Jesus. One minute, like Martha, we're the same way. We affirm great truths about God, and then the next minute we deny the very truth that we profess. How often that happens to us. One minute we give lip service to believing the right things about God and his attributes and his glory and all of those things, and we speak lofty things, and then the next time we fail to trust him when the rubber meets the road in how we make life choices for Christ or not. We're all the same, you see. Martha was orthodox in her belief. Think about this. Earlier in the text, she affirms a future resurrection in the last days that she's been taught by the Pharisees. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, but the Pharisees certainly did. And so she's orthodox in her belief. She believes in a resurrection in the last days, but standing before her is the very one who is able to bring about a resurrection in her brother in the immediate so here's a woman who is orthodox in her belief, but in her orthopraxy, in her practice, there was a disconnect. And you see, that's the case for us. We might be orthodox in our belief system, in, the, in, in how we think about truth and what we believe about the truth of God's word. We may give lip service to the fact that we believe the truth, but when push comes to shove, we don't take Christ at his word in the way that we live. And the choices that we, that we make, we're often hesitant and, and fearful about making life choices, knowing that God will keep his word to us. And so the challenge that I would have for us this morning, brothers, early in the morning, yes, is this. Do you take God at his word? In the midst of a hopeless and despairing world where death is a reality, do you take Christ at his word? Given who he is as revealed in his word, do you believe that he will do what he says he will do in your life today? Do you take him at his word? When you read, when you do your daily Bible reading every day and you read about his promises and his attributes and, and the things that he has promised that he will do in taking care of you and, and showing his love for you and his kindness and his provision every single day, do you take him at his word? And do you act on those things, trusting that he will keep his word to you because he loves you? See, too often we live hopeless and in despair because we don't take God at his word. We don't take his promises to heart. We are too often like the, the man that James describes, the book of James. We are too often the divided man, aren't we? 
the divided man. In James chapter 1 and verse 8, he speaks of, of the dipsukas, the double-minded person. The dipsukas man, literally the, the two-souled man, James chapter 1 verse 8. James says, don't be the dipsukas man, the two-souled man who is a, a, the split man, the divided man, the half-hearted man, the man who gives lip service to, to something. All the while with your life, you deny the truth. By the choices that you make, by living in sin, by not trusting God in the midst of trials, don't be the dipsukas divided man. And then later on in chapter 4, verses 7 through 8, he says it again. Don't be the double-minded man, the dipsukas man, the two-souled man. Be whole, whole, be complete, be a man of, of integrity. Well, at the core of that and central to being a man who is undivided and as far as your devotion to the Lord is taking God at his word appropriating his promises to your life. And here in Martha and Mary, we have people who, who are divided. People who might have some head understanding of Jesus, even believe him to some extent or another, but who lack the faith to take Jesus at his word. And so therefore, what are they doing? They're despairing. They're faithless. They're hopeless. This is why Jesus exhorts her in verse 40, if you notice. Jesus said to, to Martha, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Didn't I tell you? I am in the immediate going to raise your brother Lazarus from the dead. I need you to believe this, Martha. I need you to take me at, at my word that I'm going to show you my glory by raising your brother from the dead, not in the last days per your orthodox belief, but because I am the resurrection and the life in the present, in the immediate, I'm going to raise him from the dead. Do you believe this? Throughout our passage, he keeps asking that, doesn't he? Look at verse 14. Then Jesus told his disciples plainly, Lazarus has died and for your sake, disciples, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, he says. But let us go to him. Look at verse 25. Jesus said to, to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Over and over again, what's the cry of the Lord's heart? He's looking for faith. He's looking for people who take him at his word, right? Do you believe me that I'm able to do this? Look at verse 40. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Verse 42, I knew that you always hear me speaking to his father, but I said this father on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus is looking for people, brothers, who will take him at his word, right? That if he went to the cross and did the ultimate act of love and dying for your sins, surely he's going to keep his promises to you, right? Today, in the littler things of life, I want you to take me at my word. It's the cry of the Lord's heart throughout this miracle, throughout this passage. And God would say the same thing to us, brothers, this morning. God wants to reveal himself in a greater way to each of us, but we need to believe that he is more than able to do the things that he has promised that he will do. Amen? Let us be men who take Christ at his word. Second, we must live with an eye toward the lost. We must live with an eye toward the lost. As long as we dwell in this broken, 
fallen world, we must live mindful that there is a mission for us to fulfill toward the lost. And our Lord Jesus never lost sight of that reality. Even as folks are despairing and operating in a hopeless fashion, he never loses sight of the spiritually lost who are there, who are present. Look at verse 41. So they took away the stone. They responded to his command. Apparently, after her initial pushback, Martha must have given her consent, right? As the oldest of the family. And so several men removed the stone. That's what it would have taken for, for people to remove the, this big tombstone. Many men would have needed to do this. By the way, as a side note, note how Jesus enlists people some of the mourners throughout to be active in the miracle itself, right? To play a part or a role in what he's about to do. Jesus could have just said, stone be removed, and it would have happened, right? That thing would have just floated right off, right? He has that kind of power. But instead, what does Jesus do? He involves people. So there's no doubt later on that this is a real miracle because not only are there, are there real witnesses who are there, but Jesus uh, allows these people to actively participate as agents of this miracle. Not that they did the miracle themselves, but he involves them in the miracle that he's going to do, right? Later on in verse 44, he orders them to unbind him and to let him go. Surely Jesus could have done that himself. He didn't need them to do this. But what I especially want you to see here is what Jesus utters to his father in verse 41. It says that Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew, verse 42, that you always hear me. Stop right there. Here are the people eagerly anticipating to see what Jesus is about to do. And what does the Lord Jesus do? He pauses to address his father. Not with a request, by the way, or with a petition, but this is a statement of, of gratitude, isn't it? Of thanksgiving. And three beautiful things we glean from Jesus addressing his father. One, we glean the special relationship of the, that the son shares with his father. We've seen this throughout the Gospel of John. The intimate relationship that Jesus has with his father is highlighted over and over again and throughout the gospel of John. Two, we glean something of their unity, of the unity between the first and second members of the Trinity, that the father hears the son because the son does the will of the father. And this raising of Lazarus, this miracle is in accordance with the will of the father as well. But three, and to our point, Jesus addresses his father, listen to me, for the benefit of those who are standing there, right? Earlier in the passage, for the strengthening of the disciples' faith, and obviously for the strengthening of Mary and Martha, but also for those who are there who, who don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Look at verse 42. But I said this on account of the people standing around. What people? Well, Mary, Martha, the plethora of mourners, even his disciples for the strengthening of, of their faith, but especially all the people about to behold a miracle who don't believe in Jesus to this point, who don't, don't, don't affirm him as Lord and Savior for those people. Why is it that he wants to perform this miracle? That they might believe. That those who have, who have not come to know him might believe. And so think about this. Even as hostility rises, as death approaches, Jesus lives with an eye toward the lost around him. 
He hasn't become indifferent to those people. He hasn't become passive about the fact that people need salvation in the midst of this miracle. In fact, that's why he's doing this miracle, that they might believe. Here's this multitude of people, of mourners, some sincere ones, friends of the family who truly loved Lazarus, and then some hired mourners, professional mourners. And in the midst of this, he's aware that they need saving faith, that they need spiritual eyes to see his glory, and he's about to show, him, show them his glory, right? He lived with an eye toward the lost at all times, never lost sight of his mission, for he, he came to seek and to save the lost. Brothers, listen, if we're going to be like Christ, we must always live with an eye at all times toward the lost around us. Every day. That should be our prayer even early in the morning. Right? Lord, today, help me to be sensitive to your leading and to the divine appointments that are there before me this day so that I might share Christ with other people. We need to live with an eye toward the lost, brothers, especially... That's true in, in times when people are despairing in our society. People are looking for hope and they don't even know it, right? Where people are living with such a, a great state of fearfulness, right? That's why we're doing this series, Challenges Men Face, and a week from tomorrow, Pastor PJ is going to be talking about the issue of fear in the life of a godly man. But that's the, our whole culture, isn't it? That's our whole society, living in fear, especially fear of, of death, and in the midst of that, we need to recognize that and be sensitive to the fact that there are people who are spiritually lost. I'm reminded of that beautiful passage in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. Christian, you are the, a divine preservative in this wicked, hell-bound world that we live in. You see, living in hope in a broken, fallen world means that you remember that. That you are the salt of the, of the earth. That when people are fearful of things in life, of, of security or whatever, of, of death, then you have a wonderful opportunity to tell them who the one is who can actually give them hope. And his name is Jesus Christ, right? The resurrection and the life. That if they repent and believe, they can have true hope beyond anything this world has to offer. You must live with an eye toward the lost. You are the light of the world, there in Matthew 5. You're the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they might see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You see that? Jesus is the light of the world, but we are also his light bearers called to direct attention to Jesus, to make much of Jesus in the way that we live as salt and light in this world, being mindful of those who are lost amongst us as Christ was. During his lifetime, we need to be like John the Baptist back in John chapter 3, verse 30, living our lives for God with the mantra, he, Christ, must increase and I must, what, decrease. I want to make much of Jesus today. I want to live mindful of the fact that there are non-believers, lost people amongst us. And so in the midst of a broken, fallen world where death is a reality, our lives, brothers, are our most powerful witness to a lost world. And our prayer must be continually that as we witness with our lives and share the gospel with our lips, people might come to believe in the glorious Christ and be saved from this perverse generation. That was the heart of our Lord Jesus. He spoke and lived with an eye toward the lost. And here we see that even as he's going to perform this remarkable miracle, he acknowledges his father so that people might come to believe in him. He keeps saying that. 
over and over again in our text that you might believe. I want you to believe. Do you believe this, right? He's after saving faith or the strengthening of faith in his followers. Finally, in a fallen, broken world where death is real, where death is a reality, don't underestimate ever the power of God. Don't underestimate the power of God. We do that so often, don't we? Mary, Martha, the crowds all underestimate Christ's power here in this text. We see it in their reproaches toward Jesus in verse 21 and verse 32 and verse 37. All of those subtle reproaches show that they place limits on Jesus because of time or physiological things regarding Lazarus or whatever. They placed limits on Jesus and now Jesus is about to shut down everybody's perplexity and doubts, right? Look at verse 43. When Jesus had said these things, speaking of his prayer of gratitude toward his father, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. This is not a whisper here. This was not a a hesitant uh, set of words here. Oh, you know, I hope this all works out. Lazarus, come on, come on, come on, come on. None of that. With fullness of authority, this is a a loud outcry, a loud yell. He yells so that all could hear with fullness of authority, Lazarus, come out. Amazing. And he specifically, notice, calls Lazarus by name, doesn't he? I mean, there's no other dead people there that we know of, that the text tells us. Maybe there were other tombs there. But he calls Lazarus out by, by name, And importantly so, for Jesus' power is so great, listen to me, that if he doesn't call Lazarus by name, perhaps other bodies may have been raised as well in that moment. So he calls Lazarus out by name. That's how much power Jesus has. And did you notice? No song and dance, right? Like Benny Hinn and others. No dog and pony show by Jesus. He speaks mere words. The same words that created the universe now are the same words that are going to bring Lazarus back to life. Two primary words Jesus utters. His name and an order or a command to to come out and that's all it took. And the suspense and the anticipation, right? How many of us wouldn't have wanted to, to be there to watch the expression of the people as Jesus orders Lazarus to come out of this grave? And then the utter shock when in verse 44, the man who had died came out. Lazarus obeys Jesus and exits the tomb. Who in the world has that kind of power, I ask you? No one does. No one. He comes out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips. This, that, that was the custom. The corpse was tightly wrapped in white linen cloths. And his face wrapped with a, with a cloth and all of this helped with the smells. And then there were scented spices that would be sprinkled and embedded in the midst of, of the linen there for the sake of the stench, right? Can you picture it, brothers? Can you picture the faces of the crowd? You know when you watch one of those movies and there's something that suspenseful that happens in that movie and then they zero in on the faces of, the, of an individual or the people? I mean, think about the faces of the people here watching this. It's a large crowd of people, professional mourners and genuine people who truly love Lazarus and the family, and they're watching this. Can you imagine the faces of Mary and Martha? I mean, I get goosebumps just thinking about it, right? 
Can you imagine the, the emotions of these women who love their brother? We've seen how, how grievous this is to them, right? And we've experienced the death of a family member of a loved one. Can you imagine the emotions of Mary and Martha here? Here comes Lazarus, staggering, staggering out of the tomb, wrapped in linen from head to foot. I mean, for all intents and purposes, Lazarus was thought to be gone. His death had a finality to it being in that tomb, right? Well, not when Jesus, the resurrection and the life is in the picture. Amen? Not when Jesus is amongst them. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Oh, I would have loved to have been there, to have been a fly flying around to see who in the world volunteered to do that, right? <laughs> to unbind him and to let him go. Note against, again that he employs the, the people around as agents of the miracle. They were not only to be eyewitnesses, but they were to be active agents in this undeniable miracle so that there would be no doubt about the legitimacy and the factual nature, the historical nature of what happened to Lazarus. No one could deny the miracle because there were people who actually participated in some of the actions that Jesus ordered. Amazing. Boy, talk about a lesson on not underestimating the power of Christ, right? Talk about the undeniable demonstration and display of Jesus's authority over Death and the reality of death. You know, Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says that the, that the wages of sin, finish it with me, is what? Death. Right? That the just punishment for all sin, little sin, sins of thought, sins of intention, sin, sins of omission and sins of commission, the ultimate end or punishment for those things is death and no one Scripture would tell us, is able to reverse the vicious cycle of sin which leads to death. No one is able to do that. You've been doing your daily Bible reading? Amen? Have you read some of the genealogies? Notice any patterns in the genealogies? Here's the pattern. Ready? Such and such a person is born. Such and such a person lives so many years. Such and such a person what? Dies. Such and such a person lives or is born Live so many years, then they die. Repeat, 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 repeat. Death is a reality. It's a vicious cycle. People are born, people live, people die, and we're all subject to this. And Scripture would tell us that none of us, not any person, no matter how mighty and all of that people may appear to be, Nobody can reverse the vicious cycle of sin and its consequence, which is death. The only one that is able to do that, brothers, is the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrection and the life. That's what this passage teaches us. That's the point, isn't it? Here is Jesus, the resurrection and the life, who displays his great power in showing that for those who believe in him, death is far from final. You know what death is for us as believers if you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ? Death is a graduation ceremony for you. Truly. All right, we don't want to be insensitive to those who've lost loved ones. We want to weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn. Amen? But we don't weep without hope as believers. Because if that person is in Christ, guess what? That's a graduation ceremony, right? It's amazing. That's what this passage would, would teach us. Oh, what a display of Christ's power over death, brothers. But I want, you to, I want to remind you even this morning that this has implications here. 
Jesus' power to raise people from the dead has implications even for the way that we daily deal with our sin as men of God, as men in Christ. And I want you to see this. Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 1, if you will turn there with me. Paul prays that they would understand, these believers would understand the power of God. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. I want you to see this. Because there's a connection as far as the resurrection power of Christ for us and how we live our lives as men in that daily struggle against sin and our sanctification. Chapter 1, verse 15. For this reason, in light of the great plan of God and the great salvation of God, he says, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. And then he prays this in verse 18. He prays that their eyes might be, the eyes of their hearts may be enlightened. He says, I want you to have your spiritual eyes, believer, opened all the more. So that you might understand three things. Verse 18, that you might know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And listen to this. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? He says, I want you to, I'm praying for you, believer, that you might understand the great power of God that mightily works in and through you. Verse 19, according to the working of his great might, he says, you want me to, you want me to show you the power of God? He said, look at what he did in raising his son Jesus from the dead. Right, That he worked in Christ, verse 20, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under Christ's feet and gave Jesus his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul is saying, I'm praying that you would understand the great power of God, whereby he raised his son from physical death and gave him all authority over everything, over the church, over all believers, over everyone. And then he says, I want you to understand the power of God that he displayed in raising you, believer, from spiritual death. Verse Chapter 2, verse 1, and you, he says, by the way, you guys recognize that those, the chapter divisions and the verses were inserted later on, right? So in the midst of his prayer, he's prayed for us to understand the power of God displayed in the resurrection of Christ, but he goes right into chapter 2, verse 1, and he says, and, and let me show you the power of God in your life, believer. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were spiritually dead, he says, in which you once walked, verse 2, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He says, you were dead as a doornail, spiritually speaking, believer. But God, verse 4, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our tre trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by virtue of his resurrection Right? By faith, we are connected to that resurrection in Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the, ages he might, in the age, coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And you know the verse. 
Read this with me. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. Verse 10 with me. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Boy, Paul's prayer is, I want you, believer, Christian man, to understand the power of God. And you want to see the greatest manifestation of the power of God. Look how he, God raised his son Jesus from physical death. And then chapter 2, he raised you from spiritual death. And then go with me to chapter 3 in verse, um, in verse 20. He says, Now to him, God, who is able... And notice how he starts piling on the words here, right? These are superlatives, words that he's piling up one on top of another to describe the, the great might and the doing of God. Now to him who is able to, to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work, where? Within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Brothers, you want to know one of the implications of our text for even our sanctification? That because Jesus was raised from the dead and by faith you have been raised up with Christ, spiritually speaking. You now have power not only, right? A deliverance not only from condemnation and hell. But you now have power over your own sin by the power of the Spirit of God. Amen? According to the power that works within us. What comfort, what encouragement. And so death is a reality, but life indeed is offered through the Lord Jesus Christ. And one day, right? Read 1 Corinthians 15. One day, as 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, because Christ has risen, we too, like Lazarus, will be physically raised as well. We were talking about this earlier, right? How one day, I mean, we're going to be pretty good looking when we're raised, even physically, right? <laughs> if, our, if our wives recognize us or other people recognize us in heaven, we're like, wow, you were really an ugly person. Back, I didn't realize how bad looking you were, right? Perfected bodies, glorified bodies, and of course, with our Lord Jesus Christ. And so in a broken, fallen world where death is a reality, brothers, may people see us live with a sense of hope in this future resurrection. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Amen? Father, thank you. Thank you for the wonderful reminder that, Lord, this is not our best life now, by far. And we want to be reminded of that today so that we might be men who live in the midst of a despairing, broken, fallen world where people know that something is wrong. They just don't want to get to the point of giving up their autonomy and their self-authority, their self-worship to worship Christ as King and as Lord I pray that, Lord, we might be different, that by your power that works mightily within us, as Ephesians 3, 20 and 21 tells us, that we might be men who live, making much of Christ, that people would ask us, why do you have such hope? And we might be able to point to him, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.